The evil of corruption reaches into every corner of the world. Corruption lies at the heart of the most urgent problems we face. Welcome to Confidential Brief, where Chad Thomas takes you into the stories behind the issues facing our society. Our guest today, Jasmine Opperman, is a highly regarded intelligence analyst, having worked in a senior position previous um, South African intelligence community known as the National Intelligence Agency, and now works on a worldwide basis concentrating on conflict areas where there's terror such as Libya, Syria, and of course, closer to home in Capo Delgado. A recent study done by Jasmine was called Conflict in Capo Delgado from the Frying Pan into the Fire, and I think that's where we need to start. Jasmine, welcome to the show. Good afternoon, John, and good afternoon to the listeners. Jasmine, it's always great to hear from you. It's been a Thank while you. since we last chatted, and so much has happened. So let's, let's for the, the, the sake of our listeners, break down for them what the actual problem is that has manifested itself in Mozambique. And then a little bit later in the show, we're going to talk about the response by Senate. Okay, and a good question. I think what is important to understand is that we are looking at a multi-layer dynamic. That looking at the insurgency nearly confined to Cabo Delgado and the debate about extremism and the debate about root causes are but one aspect. An important aspect, which I am not denying. But a, a second layer is uh, the politicization and the politics at play in Maputo. That is to say, you're sitting with a government um, which by illusion is a unified government. You are sitting with deep differences with Intralimo, uh, hardliners, and then you see a, a weakened president uh, that is now taken centralized control and has simply not showed significant shift, shift in his position on uh, the Mozambican's government's stance toward the insurgency as a foreign threat and that the military will provide the solution and a government not projecting any capability to look at the wider context. But then the third layer is what I, and the, in that document, we, I think I also referred to it as the Iraqification. That is to say we are sitting with so many international agendas at play. Beyond SADC, beyond Rwanda, we are sitting with the U.S., we're sitting with France, uh, using the oil companies, needless to say, as proxies, because that for me in this context nothing more than proxies. Um, the U.S. Uh, already providing intelligence to the Mozambican government on the insurgency. But there's uh, this underlying, underlying context, uh, contest that's playing out uh, and all boils down to a flood of uh, weapons and arms within Cabo Delgado, which is needed but will not solve the problem. And then the last, what I would say, another layer that we can't ignore um, is the issue of private military consultants, private weapon companies coming in, selling weapons at a very fast rate, enormous amounts of money running. We do know that corruption is embedded within the Frelimo government and it has become a war economy. So we are looking truly at so many dynamics now playing out that it makes it extremely difficult for a sudden and short-term U-turn uh, in addressing the problem. I think that encapsulates the problem that we're experiencing there. 
Can we, can, can I ask you, apart from all these overlays, if we have to look at it from a simplistic perspective, is it as easy as saying you have a group of insurgents who are trying to force a, a new dispensation, a new type of regime based on what ISIS, ISIL has done in other parts of the world? No, that is a, that is a, uh, like you've just said, uh, John, it is a complete oversimplification. If one looks at the local insurgency, uh, for the last, let's say, 12 to 16 months, we are looking at about 2,500 to 3,000 insurgents. There is a very strong, vehement anti-government sentiment uh, that is deeply entrenched within a historical context and primarily from the youth. Most of these cells being led by the youth. The Islamic State dynamic is one typical to their global expansion strategy. I mean, we had six claims to credit now within less than two weeks. Seeing the opportunity, moving in and attempting to hijack it. Has it taken lead of the insurgency? I am sorry, I am not convinced as I sit here. But that for that they are going to seek ways of entrenching their extremist ideology is beyond doubt. And for the longer the insurgency continues, the more likely it is going to happen. And I, if I may put my head on the block, the stronger their voice becomes. I foresee a situation similar to Nigeria and Somalia where there will be tensions within the insurgent groups. Those that do not find an association with the Islamic State ideology and therefore stick to the anti-government opposition and those that hook onto the Islamic State and the extremist narrative and then the contest will begin. A very complex situation for sure. We're chatting to Jasmine Opperman. She is a internationally recognized terror specialist and intelligence analyst. A word from our advertisers coming up, and then we're going to continue with our conversation. You're listening to The Confidential Brief with Chad Thomas on High FM. Today I'm, I'm very fortunate to be chatting to Jasmine Opperman, who is an internationally renowned terror um, specialist in respect of certain areas, specifically when one looking at what's been happening in Libya, Syria, and now, of course, closer to home, in Mozambique. Before we went to the break, Jasmine raised the very important point that what has happened could escalate into something similar that we've seen with Al-Shabaab in Somalia or something like Boko Haram in um, Nigeria. These are, these are, of course, very concerning. Now, Jasmine, we've seen a response in respect of Sadiq countries and others that have sent troops in. The first being Rwanda, who deployed, I believe, a thousand troops, South African special forces on the ground. The Botswana forces are now there. And I think Lesotho and Zimbabwe are now also contributing, not just troops, but instructors. When you mention the number of insurgents involved and we see the reaction by the SADC and AU forces, do you believe this will be sufficient to quell it? Or because of all these underlying factors that you mentioned previously, is this going to become more of a a issue where there will be sporadic incidents and it won't be a conventional battle of one force against others. Uh, we are on the threshold uh, with the insurgency. 
for the first time they are confronted, I would argue, with, um, let's take the Rwanda deployment, 1,000 soldiers. Uh, they are well trained. They have experience in peacekeeping. I'm not referring to human rights record now, purely military. Um, and they have climbed in and are now flooding uh, with the successes they are achieving. But I want to caution your listeners that we must keep in mind Rwanda is, a, is the elephant in the room. They are, it's a bilateral arrangement. They're not being part of the SADC deployment. And clearly, they are trying to achieve as much as possible. So when SADC deployments take place, the bar is set extremely high for them to announce similar successes. Rwanda, a thousand soldiers already present in three districts, already forward deployments in two other districts with a thousand soldiers. I can't see that being sustained, and I'm afraid the numbers being played around exaggerated. Uh, that they're making a difference, yes, but look what the insurgents are doing now. They are breaking in smaller groups. Nothing new. Nothing new. They've been doing this for some time. And they are, as expected, retreating. They know what is coming. They have the intelligence sources in place. But Cabo Delgado is going to become too small a geographical area. I foresee a situation now where they're going to go into Nyasa, where they're going to move further down south. I'm not saying Pemba is on the verge of an attack, but its vulnerability has increased. And I foresee that its operational theater is going to expand. They're going to rely on classic terror attacks, IEDs, as a case in point, I will not be surprised if not immediately, but seeing suicide bombings in the near future. And with that, the SADC deployment actually creates a vulnerability to the region, which is not in a position on domestic soil to counter such activities. So there, therein lies the concern. If you have countries coming in to fight on foreign soil against insurgents, they may take out aggression through sleeper cells that already exist in some of those countries that are now there to try to assist the Mozambican government in quelling this insurgency. Without doubt. If one looks, and this is what uh, where I get frustrated, uh, people saying, oh, but look at the Islamic State. They're only claiming small attacks. My word, that is exactly their global expansion tactic. The echo chamber of propaganda, who watches it, who listens to it, who believes it as factual, ISIS dissident thinkers, when they are going to respond on a regional level, it will not be so much in support of al-Sunnah active in Cabo Delgado, but as a voice of support, for the Islamic State now present in Southern Africa. And let me promise you, it will not be via dialogue or a diplomatic letter. We know how vicious they can be. And if one looks at South Africa specifically, our security institutions, I'm afraid to say, have imploded, do not have the capacity, and do not even know what early warning signals to look for.
Now, that's something that we're going to be covering in the second half of the show in a couple of minutes. So my last question relating to the deployment in Mozambique, and it's a question that um, I haven't seen asked in mainstream media. Where does Tanzania lie in all of this? They have the Kenyans to the north who have problems with Al-Shabaab. They've got the Mozambicans to the south with problems um, that we've highlighted in today's interview. Do you see them getting involved or is it, is it, a, is it a very sensitive situation for them considering that is, the, the Islamic faith is so prolific within Tanzania? Uh, if you would allow me, let me just give you an indication. Angola at this point in time is the big one. Will they deploy? Zimbabwe d- does not have the funds. Therefore, we see only a training in, uh, brigade being deployed um, so they're not operational yet South Africa for now reconnaissance team um, so to come back to Tanzania the diplomatic relations with Mozambique is not that good for them they have not committed to being present on Mozambican soil they are more focused on the border area the Ravuma Basin area they are more concerned about an overspill Hence, we see them merely sending back Mozambicans uh, fleeing to the area. And I think there's a greater awareness that should they get directly involved, it is going to reverberate back on Tanzanian soil. And with the Islamic State and the DRC active, they are actually being squashed from two sides. Note that there's a meeting with the president today uh, in Rwanda, and we are seeing how Rwanda and Tanzania are getting closer and closer together for future collaboration and more trust in Rwanda than in the SADC region. So, Jasmine, let's come home. We've hit the 12.30 mark. We're halfway through the show, and now we get to something important. You held an executive post in the National Intelligence Agency, which is now known as the State Security Agency, from just prior to our new democratic dispensation all the way up to 2008. It must be heartbreaking when you see a blame game being played out in the, in the media where you see ministers not sitting around the table and blaming intelligence as a whole for what I think was a perfect storm that occurred in respect of the recent civil unrest. Please can we hear your considered insight? Yes, I must be honest with you. Look, I have a passion for intelligence. I still, it will never, it's like opium. You just never get rid of it. Uh, it is heartbreaking if one takes, for instance, um, during the Tabu and Beke uh, era, how we worked, how we briefed the premiers on a weekly basis on not strategic, um, theoretical waffle, tactical who, what, where, when and how. But I think what and I think what is heartbreaking is that since then, with a zoom up period, how the whole thing was being hijacked, where the politicization of top management actually became a political game. And Chad, this is important to understand. Uh, It is still at play within the state security agency where you have pro-Zuma people still in charge. Now, even if we had the best tactical intelligence available at as a point of early warning, would someone have responded and had the ability to respond? That's my first question. My second question to the intelligence service. 
Have you, if you so-called had a briefing, truly used all available channels to get the early warning uh, actionable? And there I'm referring to the Constitutional Court as your last resort. If a government is ignoring and acting that does harm to the country and its national interest, you can go to the Constitutional Court. And hence, if the presentation has been made, what was in it and why has the process simply came to a halt when no one paid attention? There has been a government implosion. Security part of it. And to pinpoint the security as the main culprit is oversimplifying the role and the standing operation, operating procedures of early warning and how it should be activated. To be honest with you, Gerald, I doubt that they had the insight on the tactical who, what, where, when and how to be able to direct the police at that point in time. You know, what, what amazes me about South Africans is they tend to believe anything they read and they also tend to go off on a tangent and believe certain narratives. So the one narrative is that Jacob Zuma is a, is a very foolish, ignorant man with not much of an education, yet the same people will say that he is solely responsible in collusion with um, outside parties such as the Guptas for the situation in which we find ourselves. Now, you and I both know that this man was an intelligence operator, exactly. and and he brought that form of using narrative disinformation into play even before he ascended to the presidency. Do you think that the state security agency was captured during his tenure? Uh, yes, most definitely. Uh, and I'm, I'm sorry to say it, and I'm not blaming... Uh, the former president for all that is happening like you say it's there are many role players that need to stand account uh, for what has happened during that phase but a uh, former president zuma is streetwise he has support in kwazulu natal not for his corruption for his position for his credentials um, if one looks at the burundi peace talks where he was involved in how he managed that brilliant um, so he knows how to use the narrative. But sadly, Chad, sadly, the amounts, what has actually happened is that a lack of accountability has fallen flat. People started using COVID structures. Money got lost. That money that's getting, that got lost, was it used as a support for president, former President Zuma? I still need to be convinced of that. But Clearly, the situation was exploited by very specific individuals to serve very specific personal interests. And the sad part added to that, there are brilliant intelligence officers. I promise you, the young generation that has stepped in, I've given training to some of them, brilliant minds. They have lost their motivation. Why? Middle management and top management closing the doors for their own interest at all cost. So we know that President Zuma was one of the brokers of peace in KwaZulu-Natal in the lead-up and shortly thereafter for the first democratic elections. And, of course, he was deployed 
by Mbeki and President Mandela at that stage to Burundi to help negotiate the peace talks between the Hutus and the, and the Tutsis. But being an intelligence operator at heart, you use the word streetwise, and I agree with you 100%. I like to say vase, and he is as vase as they come. Uh-huh. He, I still think that he was vulnerable to a sense of paranoia after what had happened um, during the lead-up to Polokwane and what happened thereafter with the recall of Mbeki. Do you think people exploited that paranoia and that forced him into a position where he decided to fool positions with people that he felt closer to and people that may have the same leanings as him as well as an intelligence-type background? Uh, in terms of intelligence background, we, we can discuss that. I don't think that was such an overwhelming factor, but that he did surround himself with people. We must remember, sorry to interrupt myself, in the preface with uh, former President Thabo Mbeki, the tensions, the way uh, Zuma exploited the ANC factionalism to gain the upper hand is was a classical move on his part. How he then surrounded himself by people in the top six at that point in time and to gain the support from ANC structures on a national level beyond KwaZulu-Natal was, and I'm saying this, and I think, Chad, you will know what I'm trying to say, brilliant play, a brilliant chess game um, that sadly has isolated President Abumbeki. Sorry, I am a... As I've worked under him, I guess I'm a bit subjective there. Um, but he did. What we need to add, any president will surround him or herself with people they trust. Now, in the ANC, if you do not have the support within the top six, you are goners. You cannot have any influence. Look at President Ramaphosa today. Look at the compromise cabinet we are sitting with. It's all a game to position yourself at all costs to be able to have some level of influence. He used that so brilliantly that it all boiled down to what he decides and how he can direct the top six. So, yes, I do agree with you. Intelligence background. Yes, there were certain individuals. If one looks at the people in charge, for instance, of the intelligence structures, beyond doubt. Uh, but the way it was managed by them, clearly a signal of what the first priority is. Coming up, we're going to be talking to Jasmine in the last segment of today about the recent civil unrest in South Africa. You're listening to Confidential Brief. You're listening to The Confidential Brief with Chad Thomas on High FM. Today is, is one of the more fascinating conversations I've had in a very long time. In fact, throughout this, this COVID pandemic, I've been looking forward to chatting to somebody like Jasmine because Jasmine is able to bring home not a subjective viewpoint, but a objective viewpoint in that Jasmine is a qualified intelligence officer and analyst. And today we've been able to cover Mozambique. We've been able to cover what's been happening with respect to the state security agency. But now we're going to focus on something that's impacted on every single one of us. And most importantly, it's highlighted some of the fractures that exist within the South African society. And that was the recent civil unrest. Jasmine, was that a perfect storm waiting to happen? Or was it something that was pre-planned and as a direct result of Jacob Zuma's imprisonment? 
Uh, no, I would, uh, and looking at the protests, and again, sorry, John, I'm going back to, to, like you say, the facts. Prior the decision to incarcerate, we already had a situation in South Africa of communities, and I like to use the term securitized, which I mean ready and willing to be able to use opportunities for their own benefit. And that goes back, and I'm, I'm not going to back into the whole issue of inequality. We all know about that. When Zuma was incarcerated, the first two days, it was clear that there was a level of organization. It was clear that there was certain uh, direction in terms of the movement of those engaged. So those that wanted to gain politically at that point in time was surfing the high tide. But then, but then it spiraled. And it's here where I have serious questions about an insurrection as because from there on with what has happened is contrary to an insurrection. Where we had the securitized communities suddenly being afforded with the opportunity and realizing the police is not in a position to control and when they went into plunder to take vandalism, was it because, and to show pro-Zuma support? No. It was about what is best for them and what they want. So to call this an insurrection, to say that the Dirty Dozen, the top 12, has been taken leading this, is actually an embarrassment to them because they have then lost complete control. And I think herein lies the problem. Will we get to know the facts? Do we have the capacity to investigate with proper evidence to get to a legally uh, justifiable verdict on this matter without political agendas? I doubt seriously. There is this obsession to redirect attention away from government failure to an insurrection narrative that will protect and will enhance the ANC's position with what we have seen at play. Jasmine, I'm so glad we're on the same page as this because it's something I've been trying to drum into people. And when one looks at the state of the haves, the have-nots, and what's been happening with the economic downturn, the pandemic, you needed that spark. And sadly, the spark came about, and the timing was perfect, but it was brought under control. But there was a failure in respect of intelligence. You and I knew something like this was going to happen. Anybody who had a clue about the way these issues work, especially the social dynamics at play, would have understood that. My final, sorry, my final question for you today, and it's to tap into your extensive knowledge. When there was a scandal in the late 70s with the Bureau of State Security, mm -hmm. it was disbanded, and suddenly we had the NIS. With the new dispensation coming about, they needed a new agency, and the NIA was formed, later split in two with domestic and South African Secret Service as foreign. They then decided to once again combine them, form the State Security Agency. We're now hearing calls again for the disbandment of a intelligence structure that is so important to our country. Do you believe they have to start from scratch again or can we work on what's already in place and utilize those resources and clean up 
the current agency. Uh, Judge, you don't mind me being frank and open. Of course. One, those that's calling for a complete reform, those that are calling for a complete shutdown, has no intelligence background and no intelligence experience. I find the arguments ridiculous, quite frankly. Uh, There is enough capacity. I will go as far as to say, appoint a person with a top management of his or her choice, appointing a top leadership, cut the budget by half, work with half the people, but specialized, motivated people, realizing that your greatest capacity lies beyond your formal employment. I'm telling you, Chad, within six months, we can have an effective intelligence service. Will it happen? I'm afraid within the politicized environment, political position will override the reality of the situation at play. It's such a pity when I get to chat to somebody like you that has the experience and the know-how of how intelligence agencies should structure, should be structured and should be operating, and to see what has happened in respect of capture, in respect of corruption, and in respect of the fact that the commitment to the country first and to the constitution mm-hmm. seems to have been forgotten somewhere along the on the way. Your last observations for today in respect of where we can see our country moving to in the in the in the near future, do you foresee any more unrest or do you foresee a change in heart in respect of this bringing to light these underlying issues? Judge, to be honest with you, I think we are in the eye of the storm, you know, when there's a moment of calmness. Uh, And then you're being hit by the next tidal wave, which is quite more vehement. Uh, I don't see the the urgency. I mean, the call for a reshuffling cabinet that everyone is now expecting. Fine, I can understand why certain demands are made. That will not make a damn difference in terms of the interventions that is urgently needed. Uh, to give people a social grant, a wealthy grant, yes, I can understand, but three to four hundred rand will not convince people when they uh, see people living in private security estates. So government has to realize there is no short-term solution. We need to up our capability to deal with these crises so that we can buy time in addressing the social inequalities that currently exist. There is no such thing as a perfect social hierarchy. There will always be inequalities, but it needs to break in South Africa from its apartheid legacy. And if that is not going to be done, I'm afraid the next tidal wave is awaiting us. Jasmine Opperman, Intelligence and Terror Specialist, thank you so much for joining us today. As usual. Um, you have fooled us with a lot of questions, but at the same time, at least given us a couple of answers and clarity so that people can at least open their mind and expand their understanding of what's really been happening. Thank you so much. Thank you for the opportunity. I really do appreciate it. We'll be back same time next week, Monday, and we'll be chatting then more about the issues that impact on your lives. And in South Africa, it's anything to do with corruption, with fraud, and most importantly, the state of affairs that impact on our population at large. Spare a thought for those that don't have. Be kind. I'll be back same time, same place next week. My name is Chad Thomas.